It is another blessed privilege and an opportunity that we each have been given this Lord's Day afternoon to come together in this way and to do so with the express purpose and joy and desire of our heart to lift up in a period of worship and adoration to our God in heaven. As Brother Gary mentioned the announcements, we are indeed thankful for the presence of each and every individual, our membership, our visitors alike, and we trust that the time that we invest in this period of worship will truly be for the purpose of that which we intend to glorify and honor the God of heaven. I might take just a moment and express how loving the song service is, how exciting it is to hear voices blending together in that way. It's also perhaps fair to make mention also that there's still an opportunity to sign up on the board out there in the foyer. If you still haven't signed up to help prepare some questions for the Bible Bowl, well, please take an opportunity and do that. I think as the youngsters and our students continue their study, they'll be arriving at some of those chapters fairly quickly. So please take the time to fill those out. Our, our youngsters will appreciate it. And all, of course, the church will as well as you take a part in assisting in that Bible Bowl work. We continue a series of lessons this evening from the book of 1 Samuel, speaking of the Bible Bowl. As we remember, they are discussing and studying the first 24 chapters of that book during the course of the study for the Bible Bowl. And we already have studied the first seven chapters of that book on Sunday evenings. As we've looked at them, we have in fact encountered just a few of these ideas. We've been introduced to Eli. We saw that this individual was a person who occupied the position of a judge, but however, he was of a position to have sons that were rather evil, in the sense that they all did many things contrary to what the will of God was. We did notice that God raised up Samuel. We have a record of his birth and the circumstances surrounding it. But we also came to see that his mother Hannah allowed him to in fact be reared and raised in the tabernacle complex and that he was one that God raised up to be a leader, a judge, if you will, of the people of that era. We did notice, however, as we arrived at chapter number 4, that the people of Israel made a very foolish decision. The elders made a choice in their battle against the Philistines to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, thinking that that would guarantee them victory. It was arguably one of the darkest days that Israel ever experienced. Not only was the Ark stolen, but we remember that also Eli died, that his two sons died, his daughter-in-law died, all of that was a very bleak and dark period as we appreciate their idolatry, God's judgment upon them due to their sin. We noticed that for a long time, that ark spent, was actually spent in Philistine territory. The lesson last Sunday evening, it finally did, of course, come back home. When it did, we remember that even the people of Beshemesh did that which they ought not have done. They looked inside it. They seemingly did not value it the way they ought to have. We remember that tumors were coming upon the Philistines when they had it, and now great death came upon the Abishamesh when they reacted in the way that was not proper. For all those reasons, that closed chapter number 7 by noting that the people did turn unto God. In the attribute and in the element of repentance, they in fact were such that they participated in a burnt offering that Samuel had offered for the express purpose of exalting the name of God. They put their idols away. They turned their heart and their attention to the true worship and the true service of the God of heaven. 
That brings us to the eighth chapter of, our, of the book tonight, and for chapters eight and nine, I would invite you over the next few moments to look with me to some of the interesting features un, unfolded to us in these two chapters. As we have done in the past, let's look at some of the historical sketches of these two chapters first, and then what lessons might you and I take from them that can be of some assistance and some helpfulness to us. As chapter number 7 closed, the children of Israel seemingly enjoyed a time when things were well. They had again enjoyed that period of sacrifice, the burnt offering. They put aside the idols, the bales that had been brought into their area. And at that time, Samuel occupied the position of a judge. The last two verses of 1 Samuel 7 remind us that there was a circuit that he enjoyed, that he participated in each year. And in that circuit, he judged the people in accordance to the will and way of God. The three particular places mentioned, he of course judged at Bethel, at Gilgal, and at Mizpah. And we also notice his hometown of Ramah was where he constructed an altar. All the while, that sets the stage for verse number 1 of chapter 8. It appears that some number of years elapsed between the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of what we would call chapter 8. Because now suddenly Samuel is an old man. His birth was recorded for us in chapters 1 and 2. And now we find that he's an old man and as such, some different things began to transpire. I've highlighted them for you here under the character of his sons. Verses 2 and 3 of this chapter remind us that Samuel was blessed with two sons. The name of the older was Joel, the name of the younger was Abijah. But we immediately appreciate that all was not well with these boys because they chose to do things that were contrary to the will of God and they chose to do things that in fact were very much against what God would have them be. Samuel appointed them judges, but that's no compliment to him because we immediately notice three things about these boys are described. I would invite you to notice the language of verse number 3. It says, in particular, they turned aside after dishonest gain. These were those that pursued dishonesty. They wanted filthy lucre. They were interested in greediness and that which literally was of the flesh. Furthermore, it says, they took bribes. If you would fill their pocket, they would judge in a way that was beneficial to you regardless of what the moral or ethical stature was. They took bribes. And finally, it says that they perverted judgment. Justice was not something of highest importance to them. What served the flesh, what was of immediate matter to them was more important. And so, under the banner of perversion of justice, they seemingly would happily do whatever benefited themselves. How sad and how tragic. As you can well imagine, the elders of Israel in the next verse, as they were aware of what these judges were doing, these sons of Samuel, the text informs us that they, in fact, gathered themselves together and came to Samuel, and they had a demand of him. It was really stronger than a request. The demand was uttered in the language that Brother Greg read for us a moment ago. Verse number 5 says... They said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Their singular demand was, Samuel, you are old. 
Furthermore, your sons do not seem to have the air of spirituality, the air of confidence and reliability that you do. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And with that request, the people had uttered again what in their estimation was the better course of action. We would prefer a king, Samuel. As you'll notice in the next verse, the first thing that Samuel did after observing his displeasure was that he turned to the Lord in prayer. He prayed unto God about this request. Verse number 7 states the matter abundantly. The Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Up until that time, we well remember that there had been no king in Israel. In fact, the book of Judges affirms that twice, that there had been no king in Israel. Judges 17.6, Judges 21.25. However, the time had now come when the people were interested in and desirous of, in fact, demanding of a king. As Samuel petitioned to God on this behalf, God says, Samuel, understand the fact that it's not you they have rejected. It's me. They were no longer satisfied with God's leadership by way of the judges. They were no longer satisfied with His theocratic jurisdiction over them. They wanted an earthly ruler. They wanted a king. Isn't it interesting that they said, We want a king to judge us like the nations. As you'll notice in the next verse, beginning in verse number 8, God reminded Samuel, of some history in which even in the nation of Egypt they had understood and they had abided beneath the leadership of those that were kings. You'll notice in verse number 9, God one more time says, Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. What an interesting reaction. God, with interest, heard their plea. He heard their request. And now to Samuel, he said, They've rejected me, Samuel. But before you grant their request, and before you, with my permission, allow them to have a king, make sure they understand what a king will demand of them. Make sure they understand what a king will ask of them. And make sure that they know what will be involved in the upkeep of a king. In the verses that follow, several things are mentioned. Make sure, Samuel, God said, that the people know that in order to keep a king, you will need to understand that he will take your sons and your daughters and enlist them in his army. He will employ cooks and perfumers and others to feed himself and all his servants. Make sure you understand that he will tax you. He will take your monies to upkeep himself and the nature of what is his preference. All the while, that's the nature of a king. I would invite you to notice, after the people listened to all these protestations, this is how they reacted. Verse number 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of the Lord, the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king reign over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. After hearing all these statements about taxation, about the nature of enlisting of your sons and daughters and the taking of your lands and your fields, the people said, We've heard enough of this, Samuel. 
We want a king. One that will allow us to be like the nations and one that will judge us like the nations and one that will go out and fight our battles for us. Samuel, we want a king. With the statement of that, verses 21 and 22, close chapter number 8. And it says, Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. God had not only heard the request, He now gave the full permission and authority of Samuel to grant their request, give them a king. Needless to say, as chapter number 9 opens, we will be interested to know how did this continue to develop? Who would the first king be? What would his character be? Verse number 1 of that chapter begins to tell us the detailed record of God's selection for the first king of Israel. As you can see on that slide, the very next slide concerning this history, we can appreciate the fact that verse number 1 makes mention of the tribe of Benjamin, a man named Kish who had a son named Saul. Saul was God's chosen one to be that first king of Israel. In the opening verses of this chapter, we find that Saul is described in a magnificent way. Verse number 2 says, that this gentleman named Saul was a choice young man. Furthermore, he was a goodly man. Finally, there was not any among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. I suppose you and I would choose words such as young, tall, strong, and handsome. He was appealing to look upon, attractive to see, and it seems that he was able to get things accomplished and done. Saul was a very impressive young man. He was the choice of the God of heaven for the first king of Israel. We notice in these opening verses of chapter 9, at this particular time, his father's donkeys were lost. They, by some means, had traveled a far distance from home, and he was wishing for them to be, to be returned. And so it was that he sent Saul, his son, and a single servant to go and find the donkeys and to bring them back home. As you can see, beginning in verse number 3, they passed through a number of places looking for these donkeys. First, they passed through the land of Shalishah. Following that, the land of Shalem. Following that, the land of the Benjamites. With no success finding the donkeys of, Saul, of, the donkeys of Kish. Finally, we notice in verses 4 and 5, they came to the land of Zuph, Z-U-P-H. As they arrived at this place, by this point, they were becoming very discouraged. To this point, not having found the donkeys, three days had passed. The text informs us in rather rapid order that the servant of Saul was now one who had a good idea. Saul had about decided it was time to go back home for Kish would be worried about them as opposed to the donkeys. However, we notice that the servant of Saul had a very interesting idea. He said, there is a man of God in this city. Let us in fact inquire of him so that we may find out which way we ought to go. Immediately, they had made decision that in order to consult the man of God, a present ought to be presented 
Saul couldn't think of a good present. The servant did. In his possession, he had a quarter of a shekel of silver. That, they thought, would satisfy to be a good present. And so, off to the man of God they went. Little should we now appreciate the fact that that man of God was none other than Samuel. He happened to be at this location at this time. Amazingly enough, we immediately learned that there was a notable sacrifice taking place that very day and a sacrifice over which Samuel was officiating as the priest. We find, interestingly, that as Saul and his companion arrived at the city, they, of course, were told, there is the man of God here. He's officiating over the sacrifice. Go on up to the city and you shall find him. When they found him, God had already revealed to Samuel that one day earlier, tomorrow I'm going to bring you a man and I'll show you the one who I wish you to appoint to be the next king of Israel, the first king of Israel. And sure enough, when they saw Saul and his companion, we appreciate that God informed him this is the one. He was the one that I had forewarned you I would send. He was the one that you should anoint. In the latter verses of chapter number 9, Saul and his servant enjoyed a period of feast and a fine meal with Samuel and the others. And the chapter reaches its conclusion with Saul being told a very interesting message. We shall see the fullness of the message when we cover chapter number 10 next week. But for now, might we notice, the curtain somewhat closes in an interesting way. Samuel told Saul, send the servant on ahead. I have a message for you. You and I can only wonder the fullness of what that message will be and the way in which it will be brought and how Saul will react to it. Will he accept the choice that God has made of him as the king? We shall find out in chapter 10. For now, as we've closed this chapter, you'll notice that as the donkeys were found, Samuel did urge him, knowing all the story, to not be alarmed, for they are okay. With that, you can see one final set of messages. The nature of the choice that God had made of the first king. The kingship would be one that will have a very prominent effect throughout all the rest of the Old Testament. The kings were individuals, you see, who ultimately did have a great deal of influence. Sad to say, many of them were ungodly. Many of them were wicked. The majority of them did not do the bidding of God. But yet the people had chosen to be ruled by a king. I wonder what might be some lessons from all of this that could be helpful to us. As we start that, let's revisit the opening part of chapter 8 for the first lesson. We begin in the opening parts of that chapter by stating this interesting thought. Samuel, as far as what we concluded in the years prior to 1 Samuel 8, was a very notable individual in the history of Israel. He was the 15th and final judge that they ever enjoyed. We've seen he was the one that officiated over the return of that ark. He was the one that occupied a central station as he was reared in the tabernacle. He was the one that God chose to lead them out of the overthrow of the Philistines. A man that was godly, a man that was powerful, and a man that had much to speak in a positive way. But we're introduced to his sons. They weren't like their father. 
they were described as we noted earlier. Ungodly sort of fellows, full of iniquity. They chose to pervert judgment. They chose to accept bribes. They chose to pursue dishonest gain. They chose the materialistic, carnal matters of this earth. No doubt, much to the chagrin of their father. That is, in fact, our first lesson, as you can see on that slide. Individual righteousness. The fact that those boys will answer to God for what they had done. Samuel won't answer for them. They'll answer for themselves. And that has been a timeless lesson throughout the ages, hasn't it? The recognition and the powerful truth that our children, as much as we love them, we must understand that they do make their own decisions. Oftentimes, as we appreciate that fact, our mind should return to the scene of Samuel. It would appear that he made a gigantic mistake putting them in as positions of judges. They were not godly men. They couldn't uphold the law as it had been revealed in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, for they didn't appreciate it. But yet Samuel made them judges anyway. Might we appreciate in that some thoughts for us? Perhaps the words of Ezekiel are so very appropriate. In Ezekiel 18 verse 20, the noble writer there said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. How many examples can you and I think of in the sacred scriptures? where there were those godly gentlemen, those godly men and fathers and mothers as well, who had children who chose to do that which was wicked, that which was ungodly. And no doubt tears streamed down the faces of their parents because they'd made these foolish choices. We might well revisit those early days in Genesis. We will recall that Isaac and Rebekah had two boys. Esau, it seems, was a son that brought a great deal of grief in many ways. Did he not choose to sell his birthright for a bowl of beans? Did he not choose to despise what was so valuable? I wonder how often Isaac reflected on the foolishness of his oldest son. And yet he chose to sell the birthright. It wasn't his father's choice. Can we appreciate in some of those thoughts that there was a scene again where a son made such a bad choice? There are others in the Scripture as well. There are also those that made good choices. Isn't it amazing that there are those times when there are parents who themselves are wicked and ungodly, full of sinfulness and iniquity, and yet they are blessed with a child who is wise enough, honorable enough, and godly enough to learn the truth and follow it. One of those kings in the Old Testament that we shall encounter later in study, we shall encounter him in Second Chronicles, but his name was Amon. Without question, one of the most wicked, ungodly rulers that Judah ever had. And yet he had a son named Josiah who at the tender age of 16 appreciated the law of God and chose to instill within his people a love for it. Though Amon was so wicked, he was blessed with a godly son. And one who in fact did much to turn Israel to the way of rightfulness and away from idolatry. What a blessing it was to have a son like that. I wonder if Amon ever appreciated it. I doubt it. You and I can appreciate too that today doesn't the same choice rest with us? 
each and every one of us make our own individual decisions by which we shall be judged on that great and final day. We as parents yearn and long for children that follow in the footsteps of wisdom as they strive to learn and do what's right. In the final analysis, that choice is left to them. As thankful as we are when they make those right choices, it fills our hearts with joy and pride, and it helps us appreciate that, in fact, they have learned much from a study of the Word of God. As you can see, this matter of individual righteousness is highlighted in the language of Joshua 24, 15. In the closing chapter of the book of Joshua, that noble man Joshua, as he was nearing the time of his own death, he had words like this to say, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Israel again was battling the matter of idolatry. They were battling the issue that there were these forces from outside that were encouraging them to give attention and credence to false gods. Joshua said, I'm telling you, the choice is yours. But he closed the verse by saying, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Each and every one of us are in a similar position to that one. May we have the determination that he had to determine without any compromise that we will indeed serve the Lord. As our children reach the point in life and they choose to obey the gospel, what an exciting and eager day that is. I know that many within the sound of my voice have understood that day when you watch your child be baptized. There are few things that can equal it. It is a day in which you appreciate the individual decision and choice that they make and the special character of where they've come to make that decision. We at Pippin, of course, understand that many of our youngsters have made that decision, and so thankful are we for that. But may we continue to set before them the example of godliness, the example of right living, so that they will continue to be encouraged, and they too can continue to make the right decisions. We often pray that in spite of the temptations they face, Quite often, the peer pressure that's before them, that they will continue to stand firm and strong. Unfortunately, Samuel's boys messed up badly. They did so many things that no doubt brought such evil to Israel. May we, of course, be thankful that the individual choices of rightness have so often been made, but may we not lose the thought that more decisions are yet to come. Individual righteousness... What about a second lesson? You can also appreciate that in 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, God made a very interesting comment. When the people made request for a king, God first of all said to Samuel, They have not rejected you, they have rejected me. I'm sure that if you had actually presented that thought to Israel, they would have said, We have not rejected God. We merely want a king so that we can, in fact, serve him better. We want a king to assist us and encourage us and do these things for us so that we can, in fact, serve him more nobly. I strongly suspect the elders of Israel would have replied that way. However, that's not what the truth of the matter was. God said, you've rejected me. In the request for a king, you've, you have rejected me. God, you see, was the one that had been reigning over them. 
He was the one directing their ways. He was the one selecting the judges. He was the one rearing them up. He was the one guiding through the law given by way of Moses and the others of the Levite tribe. But now the people didn't want that anymore. We want a king. I suppose the earliest episode that makes us think along that line takes us all the way back to Numbers 14 verse 4. This wasn't long after they left Egypt. And the people on that occasion said, Make us a captain and lead us back to Egypt. Here was a people that had crossed the Red Sea by the powerful miracle that God had done. Parted the water for them on dry land they'd crossed. Moses, as their leader, had given them manna from heaven as well as water out of a rock. He'd thrown, in fact, trees into water that turned it from bitter to sweet. Miracle after miracle they had seen and in fact benefited from. But they said, make us a captain, we want to go back to Egypt. Here were people that had been released from bondage, all the rigor of slavery, and they wanted to go back. Makes us think today that there are some who have come out of the difficulties and corruption of sin, enjoyed Christianity for a while, and then they seemingly want to go right back again. 2 Peter 2 verses 18 to 22 describe that very scenario, doesn't it? It might be wise for us again to notice, God said, you have rejected me. In that rejection, it does challenge us to appreciate the following lesson, doesn't it? The greatness that we have seen to this point reminds us the language they used was very telling. In fact, we found it twice in the chapter. Make us a king that we may be like the nations. They wanted to be like those round about them. They weren't interested in being peculiarly devoted to God. They weren't interested in being different and dedicated to Him. They wanted to be like everybody else. There's always great danger in that, isn't there? As soon as we, we want to be like them, it won't be long before we will be like them. That's just, just the way it always works. It may be we can recall our parents more than once telling us, you don't have to be like everybody else. Just because they want to do this doesn't mean you need to. Just because they want to wear that doesn't mean you need one. Sometimes dad and mom were very wise in those instructions, weren't they? Here, Israel just wanted to be like everybody else. The Canaanites had their king, and the Ammonites had their king, and the Moabites had their king, Egypt had its king, and the other nations had theirs. We want one. God said, you're rejecting me, aren't you? His leadership wasn't sufficient. It wasn't adequate. It wasn't satisfactory. You see, when we reject God's way, we reject God. That's the way it always is. And it's still that way even today, isn't it? Those who reject God's way for the church are rejecting God, for His church has been set forth the way He has desired it and the only way He will accept it. Thus, we are left to change it to fix what we prefer. And if we reject His way, we reject that way He has set forth, and that's not acceptable. Rejecting God's serious business, isn't it? No wonder we're told in Exodus 23:2 that great warning that not to be like everybody else. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. And oh, what a multitude there is pursuing evil in our world. 
we often utter prayers that remind us that decisions in great places are often directed in sore and tragic directions. Our world seemingly is rushing headlong toward doom and destruction. May we thankfully appreciate that God has a better way than that. But if we're like the world, we're headed along that wide way just like they are. Jesus did say in Matthew 7, 13, didn't He? Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few, few, He said, there be that find it. How loving it is to be a number, numbered with a few. To appreciate that that small number, that few as reckoned by the annals of heaven, are those that are pleasing in the sight of God. You'll notice rejecting God was going to make Israel like all those other nations. But yet they were guilty of such evil. We noticed about three Sunday nights ago in a lesson entitled, It is Abomination, that one of the things that the Canaanite nations were guilty of was sexual sin of the highest order. And yet here Israel says, we want to be like them. Surely they weren't thinking correctly. Surely they weren't thinking nobly. Wanting to be like nations that were full of iniquity and sin? Wanting to be like nations that were directed very much against the plan and will of God? Wanting to be like nations that were so far removed from truth? That's what they wanted. That does lead us to the third lesson. After noting about individual righteousness and also about this matter of rejecting God, what's left is to notice God's reply. Give us a king, they said. The first thing Samuel did was pray about this. He approached God because it displeased him. And God says, grant their request. Give them what they have asked. But before you do, make sure that they hear and make sure they understand. This is what a king's going to do. And verse after verse describes what we today still understand kings always do. They tax you. They take your possessions to fulfill their kingdom, their soldiers, their armies, and their needs. That's what kings do. But then they said in verse number 19, Nay, but we will have a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The last verse in verse number in chapter 8 says, Hearken unto their voice and make them a king. God answered their prayer the way they wanted it. They wanted a king and God said, Okay, you may have your king. As you and I think about that and ponder that, isn't that an interesting consideration? Because God had just said, in the selection of a king, you're rejecting me. But then God answered their prayer and He said, here is the king you're wanting. And chapter after chapter tells us about the kings they had. First there was Saul and then there will be David and later there will be Solomon. And then the kingdom will split and each one of them is going to have around 20 more kings. One by one we see such evil. We see such iniquity. We see such foolishness. Every now and then across the stage will come a godly man, a ruler. And every now and then we will appreciate that this person will try to teach them the right way again. The last lesson that I put on that was entitled, Be Careful What You Ask. The people asked for a king and they got it. My suspicion is many times in the future days of the Old Testament they regretted ever asking 
My suspicion is that when they were faced with these ungodly men like Ammon and Manasseh and Zedekiah and a whole host of the others, more than once they probably wished they had never asked for a king. But they, in fact, got what they wanted. Perhaps that challenges us to ask very wisely and to be careful as we pray because we might just get what we asked and we might regret ever getting it. Doesn't it suggest to us from the words of James chapter 4 that when we ask, we need to be careful to ask not amiss, but we should ask with wisdom. Doesn't the book of James begin in the opening chapter, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Oh, how we should pray for wisdom to know what we should ask for and the way we should ask it so that in fact it will always be a prayer directed in accordance to the will of God. Jesus, in fact, early in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, He said, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. If that is our sole desire as well, that the will of God be accomplished here as thoroughly, as completely, as entirely as it is in heaven, then it's not likely we will ask amiss. But our prayer will be attuned to the frequency of God and we'll be ready to always ask in a way that's in harmony with His will. I'm reminded of Hosea 13.11. Far later in the Old Testament, hundreds of years later, through the prophet Hosea, God said, I gave them a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. God gave them a king all right, but God says, I took him away in my wrath. Many times those kings acted so foolishly and so sinfully. And God had to reprimand and punish them many, many times. May you and I in wisdom ask rightly. Ask with spiritual thrust and spiritual motivation. Understanding that prayer is not just to be wasted on physical things, carnal things. Although it's proper to thank God for the blessings of food. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus prayed. The ultimate thrust of prayer runs far deeper than that. We do remember that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The famous words of James 5.16. With that, as we come to the closing thought of our lesson this evening, we have learned two more chapters have presented us a whole host of lessons and thoughts about Samuel and the days of Israel asking for a king. The lessons we've extracted were these. Individual righteousness, rejecting God and its seriousness. Finally, the characteristic of ever being urgent and earnest in praying with wisdom. This very night, there may be one or more in this audience that needs to make a public response to the invitation call. You need to not reject God, but accept His plea and accept His command and live in harmony with it. The plan of salvation presented to us is as simple as this. You at first need to hear the blessed words of truth. Respond to it in faith as you believe in truth that Jesus is in fact that Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name with simplicity and with great belief that He is the Son of God. And be immersed in water, baptized if He please for the forgiveness of sins. That is a special and fantastic occurrence. If you have at one time done that, but you've wandered away from the fold of faithfulness, you've started rejecting God, you've started making individual foolish choices, you have begun asking for things in prayer that are not proper requests, 
why not come back to your first love tonight? Let us pray with you, for you, so that God will in earnestness will hear and forgive as He has promised in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to one or more in this audience, we would only ask that in simplicity and in haste, you let us know the way we can help and do that while together we stand and while we sing.